the idea of traveling has been on my mind. I wonder why. Uh, but actually, it's be, um, you know the end of summer is here, and uh, I know a lot of people who are finishing up vacations or um, are still traveling, coming back home, and <clears throat> a uh, quote that Lawson Roshi used to always use from T.S. Eliot. Um, I think it's from T.S. Eliot's Little Gidding, uh, came to mind. He says, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all of our exploring, we'll be to arrive where we started and know that place for the first time. Come back to where we are and know that, know this as if for the first time. Um, this traveling business, vacations and everything also brought up a koan for me. So I'd like to get into that today. Uh, we're gonna take a look at case number 20 of the Book of Equanimity. And it goes like this. Uh, excuse me if I butcher the Chinese names, but I'll do my best. Dai Zong said to Fayan, where are you going? And Fayan said, I'm going on pilgrimage, traveling aimlessly. Daizong said, what do you think of traveling? And Fayan replied, I don't know. Daizong said, not knowing is most intimate. At that, Fayan had an awakening. And that's the case. Working, coming here, learning the forms of this particular zendo, I was reflecting on the formal structure of practice and how so many people feel clumsy with it uh, for quite a while when they're new to practice. Um, finding out what the correct postures are and bows and chants and it can all feel so foreign, uh, but as soon as we learn the forms and they become second nature, it offers us a way to dive into a deeper relationship with our practice. We have an opportunity to let the form of practice do its work on us, the chanting and the bowing, But I've also realized that many people um, pass through that stage as well, going from feeling confused about the form to feeling like it's second nature and letting it work on us to 
it becoming dry, it becoming rote, kind of lifeless. And <clears throat> I thought that the same thing is true with anything that we do. Uh, a new job, for example, or a new relationship, um, they can feel exciting and make, it can make us feel more alive, more present. But inevitably, the same thing can happen. The routine of it all can settle in. And as that newness wears off, things can flatten out and we can grow tired and wary of our routine. And so the process begins where we start seeking elsewhere. And for many people, the solution to this kind of monotony is found in peak, peak, uh, peak experiences, having peak experiences. Or for some, it becomes simply a matter of waiting for the weekend. You know, fun activities and everything gets crammed into sort of Saturday and Sunday. I don't know if you all are familiar with that, remember that song, I think it's by Loverboy, Everybody's Working for the Weekend. You remember that song? So whether we're weekend warriors or adrenaline junkies, um, or simply content with sort of binge-watching Game of Thrones or, or, uh, or House of Cards or uh, you name it, um, we use these things sometimes to, to uh, stave off the, the roteness of our routines. I think a sort of visual representation of what this might look like um, would be an EKG or a, an ECG. I'm not a doctor, but I, I recently had a heart monitor put on me because I was having heart palpitations um, and they gave me a printout of it. But it's sort of like, you know, um, there's a pulse and then a flat line, then a pulse and then a flat line. Another pulse and a flat line. So it's like uh, vacation, flat line. Holiday, flat line. Weekend, flat line. Eclipse, <laughs> flat line. You know, concert. So when the vacation comes, or when the eclipse comes, we, we say, gosh darn it, uh, I'm gonna enjoy the hell out of this. And some version of the thought that I've gotta squeeze every ounce of enjoyment out of it because I know what's coming, comes through our mind. I've gotta enjoy this because I know that flatness is coming back. But the thing is, that's a lot of pressure that we put on ourselves. And sometimes it works, of course. But for a lot of people, it's kind of a recipe for disaster. Because 
we project so many ideas on our vacations or activities that we never really have a chance. It never lives up to our expectations. Not just things, though. Just now I'm thinking um, perhaps people as well not living up to our expectations. Tomorrow, it's reported that millions of people are going to take the day off and go on a pilgrimage to go see the eclipse. Um, some towns that are in the path of the eclipse are expecting tens of thousands of people, right? Um, and I've heard that Airbnb prices have completely shot through the roof, like thousand, $1,000 per night in some of these towns that are in the, in the uh, path of the totality. Um, Dana and I, <clears throat> or Dana, when she got here, she went to the Science Center, I think it's at, or the Nature Center, the Science Center in Chapel Hill, um, to check in about a job application, but she saw this line wrapping around the building and out. And when she got in there, she was told that this was a line for the solar glasses, you know, and they had completely sold out. And so she got online and ordered a five pack from Amazon for like 40 bucks. <sighs> you know, and these are like, you know, 20 cent glasses, right? So if anybody, we have five. So if anybody needs a pair, come see me. Okay, I've got, no, 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 we, we, yeah. we're going to bargain here. <laughs> uh, I walked into Walmart the other day, and front and center, as you walk through the doors, was a rack of t-shirts with Eclipse 2017 and a picture of the moon and the sun. Um, the media has made such a frenzy out of the Eclipse given it so much attention that it, to miss it seems like it would be kind of a sin. You know, I've heard interviews with eclipse chasers that talk emphatically about how watching an eclipse has changed their life. And um, I've heard that there's a town somewhere, maybe Nebraska or somewhere out in the west where, where it's Carhenge or whatever, where they've taken cars and uprighted them and made kind of a Stonehenge, and this happens to be in the path of the eclipse, and there are just like thousands and thousands of people headed out there. So my guess is that this eclipse has been built up so much in people's minds that it couldn't possibly live up to people's expectations. We'll see. A part of Zen practice is recognizing how we spend our time, how sometimes we spend our time chasing experience, chasing after the dream of experience. Um, <clears throat> I once met a woman at the Baltimore Zen group, uh, Rinzai Zen group in Baltimore I used to sit with back in the 90s, early 90s. <clears throat> and she admitted to me 
that what she wanted from practice was to recreate her psychedelic experience from the 1970s. When we chase experience or pursue something so fervently, we risk ruining it. But why is that true? It's because what we're really after is our ideas, not the thing itself. We project all of our ideas out in front of us, and we chase those. And this can happen with spiritual practice as well, with Zen practice. We can become so enamored, so uh, caught up with our ideas about spirituality, whatever that word means, that we walk right past what we're looking for. And isn't that what all the Zen masters keep telling us? It's right here. Yeah, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. We'd rather believe our ideas than see what's right in front of us. And so Zen practice is really about learning intimacy, about practicing intimacy. And when we're filled with our ideas of things and of people, and expectations, we'll never find intimacy. I remember, I don't have it with me, but reading a story from a Zen, contemporary Zen teacher who said, it's kind of like when a guy gets together with a, a woman, perhaps, and everything's going well. He gets so enamored with her, so into her that he does anything, buys her this and makes her dinner and all this. And as they get to know each other, he worries that he's going to lose her and so he pursues her more. And it becomes where he gets together maybe with his, his friends and he's, he tells what he's doing and, and they warn him, hey, you know, you're actually pushing her away. You're grasping too hard. And he says, no, 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 I, I gotta do this. And, and then she breaks up with him. And so he asks her why. And she says, I feel pinned in. I feel squashed. I feel too much pressure from you. is pursuing and is caught up with that pursuit. That's it. So the truth is we all come to practice in a similar way. And what happens is we begin to pursue our practice, whether that's the breath or a koan we, begin, we, we set it up as a duality. There's me, and then there's my practice. There's me, and I've got to get my practice. I've got I've to get my practice. There's me, and there's mulu. Well, there's me and breath. Subject and object. 
And like that person who pursues that perfect mate or the perfect vacation or the perfect eclipse experience, um, we try to mold and fit the thing to our preferences. But of course, that's not how we build intimacy. So, one thing that came to mind was if we want to know, which is very difficult to judge our practice, but if we want to get a hint about our own practice, where we are in spiritual practice, look how you do relationships. How do you relate to others? This might give you a clue about how you're relating to your practice. There are parallels. So the process of learning intimacy, of bringing these two set seemingly separate things together, um, is about closing this gap, uh, using maybe the metaphor of the eclipse, just like that moon and the sun, of the moon getting closer and closer to the sun and then passing over the sun until there's just eclipse. The full moon of breath or koan slowly eclipsing this bright light of ourself subject and object merging. And to some, this can sound frightening. To the image, or the image of being extinguished, this light being extinguished, just in, like in relationships where we can feel engulfed by somebody else. The self going dark. And the fear of losing our individuality often comes up in practice as we deepen it. But the truth is that this can be a tremendously liberating experience. Why? Well, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to maintain, to keep this bright light shining. A lot of energy goes into maintaining this ego identity. All of the ways that we um, defend ourselves and prop ourselves up, reestablishing that I. All of that effort actually drains our energy. And so to let go, even for a moment, can feel tremendously uh, freeing to let that intellect, that judging intellect, go dark. So what does this have to do with the koan? Uh, go back to that. Reading, reading it again, Dai Zong said to Fayan, where are you going? And Fayan said, I'm on pilgrimage, wandering aimlessly. Dai Zong said, what do you think of all that wandering and traveling? Fayan said, I don't know. Dai, Dai Zong said, not knowing is most intimate. 
what was the state that Phion was in? What state was his mind in when he said, I don't know? This wandering aimlessly. During long retreats in Zen, where we sit, as I think many of you have been to, I know many of you have been to, we sit for 10 hours or so a day of Zazen, and Doksan is offered. And it's not uncommon for people to show up in Doksan after a few days of practicing, and they say something like, I don't know how I ended up here in Doksan. I don't know how I just got here. I just heard the bell and came. They have no questions. They have no answers, no thoughts. You could say that their practice walked them to Doksan. No self. In Zen practice, this kind of mind state is an important milestone. We call it samadhi, one-pointed samadhi. Um, a state where all of our thoughts cease, where um, there is no distraction in the mind. And it can be kind of a, it can be a very peaceful state. It's not awakening, but it's a good sign. So we can be sure that Fayan wasn't thinking about his pilgrimage, his traveling. He wasn't booking his next leg of his pilgrimage on Travelocity or looking into the next um, Airbnb. And um, what, if he wasn't doing that, what state was his mind in? This koan is actually taken from a longer story, and I just want to share that with you. This is from Andy Ferguson's Zen's Chinese Heritage, The Masters and Their Teachings. So, apparently, um, Fayan was on pilgrimage with his friends, a few more monks, and they were sidetracked by a snowstorm. So they were forced to stay at Daizang's monastery. Um, so when this, this other version of the story goes like this, when the snow was gone, the three monks said farewell and started to depart. And the teacher, Daizang, accompanied them to the gate. And he said, I've heard several times when you guys were talking Something about the three realms are only mind and myriad dharmas are only consciousness. And so Daizong then pointed to a rock which was lying on the ground near the gate and said, so if that's the case, do you think, do you say that that rock is inside or outside of your mind? Fayan said, it's inside my mind. And Daizong said, well, good luck on your pilgrimage carrying such a large rock around in your mind. So Fayan was dumbfounded and he couldn't answer. How was I gonna how was he gonna carry around that rock? So he put his luggage down at Dai Zong's feet and asked him to clarify the truth. 
And each day for the next month, Fayan spoke about the way, and he demonstrated his understanding. Daizong would always say, the Buddha Dharma isn't like that. Finally, Fayan said, I've run out of ideas and words. I've run out of words and ideas. And Daizong said, if you want to talk about the Buddha Dharma, everything you see embodies it. What is it like when we run out of words and ideas? When our plans fail, when our scheming stops, when we finally drop our bags and stop seeking, do you see what state of mind he was in when he said, I don't know? That's fertile ground in Zen practice this state of I don't know. Not grasping and not knowing. From what I've heard, for some, this is why total eclipses are so powerful. They're apparently a shock to the system. They're shocking to our intellect because there's the sun and then it's gone. It's not behind a cloud, but it looks apparently like a black disk, a total night sky, and then a black disk. Um, a woman named Helen McDonald wrote for New York Times Magazine uh, in 2006. Apparently she went to see a uh, total eclipse, and she said, I stood on a crowded beach in Turkey and waited until, at the allotted time, with a chorus of screams and cheers and whistles and applause, the sun slid away, and impossibly, impossibly, we saw above us a stretch of black sky and in the middle of it a hole, blacker than anything I've ever seen, fringed with a ring of soft white fire. <clears throat> my heart jumped up to my throat and my eyes grew hot with tears. I fell to my knees, feeling tiny and huge and as lonely as I ever have been, but also astonishingly close to the crowds around me. Totality, the point of a solar eclipse when the sun is entirely covered by the moon is incomprehensible. Your mind can't grasp any of it, not the dark, nor the sunset clouds on the horizon, nor the stars, just that extraordinary rawness up there that pulls the eyes towards it. I stared up at the hole in the sky and then at the figures around me and became gripped by the conviction that my life was over, that I was kneeling in the underworld in the company of all the shades of the dead. It was bitterly cold a loose wind blew through the darkness, but then came third contact from the lower edge of the blank black disk of dead sun burst a perfect point of brilliance. It leapt and burned, unthinkably fierce and bright. 
something absurdly like a word. I'm not a person of faith, but even so, the sun's reappearance as the moon drew away seemed like the first lines of Genesis retold. I thought that was beautiful. <clears throat> the thing is, we don't need eclipses to experience that kind of wonder. Zen teaches us that that wonder, that openness, can be found everywhere. Everywhere. Nansen, famous Nansen, was spending time with a government official. And Nansen pointed to a peony flower in the garden and said, people look at this flower as if in a dream. People look at this flower as if in a dream. What is it like to wake up from that? <clears throat> to wake up from that dream? So, how should we practice? Tomorrow, during the eclipse, as you know, there will be a 70 or so, 67, 70 mile wide swath that cuts across the country where the eclipse is total. The path of totality. Zen practice asks us to walk the path of totality. To put ourselves totally into what we're doing. 100% not holding back, not retreating to our thoughts or to our fears, and letting go of our knowing of this relating through our ideas. Not knowing is intimacy. There is the intimacy of asking somebody how they are and really meaning it. The, ask, the intimacy of having tea with somebody or simply sitting in silence. Nothing in the mind. And when we practice in the, this way, the self becomes eclipsed by the moon of intimacy. So let's view the eclipse tomorrow but practice getting eclipsed every moment. Okay, our time's up. So we'll stop here.